Welcome to The Logbook. I'm your host, Lucas Weekly. This episode is supported by you, the listeners, through Patreon. Head over to thelogbookpodcast.com for more information. In this episode, we hear what it's like to compete in some of the most challenging ultralight aircraft competitions. Where to start? Well, I started flying ultralights back in 1984. My buddy came to me and said, look at this cool stuff we can order, and it doesn't cost a lot of money, and you don't need a license, and looks like a lot of fun. So he and I bought identical ultralights back then, and I flew just locally by myself for the most part for the next 10 years, and then ran across a group about 30 miles south of me who were flying ultralights, and uh, got to be pretty active with that group. And then we heard about this stuff, uh, this ultralight competition thing that was going on. There were other groups around the Midwest who were having little fly-ins and competitions. And back then it was uh, it was fun stuff like dropping beanbags on a target or uh, rolling softballs at uh, two-liter pot bottles, lawn bowling, spot landings, stuff like that. Uh, but it was mostly simple stuff, not a lot of skill involved. And then we started hearing about international competitions and got looking into that. And some of my friends actually went to Spain in 2001 for the World Air Games and came back with all these cool stories about what they were doing and how incredibly detailed and uh, intense the competition was. It was a different type of thing from what we've been used to in that most of it had to do with precision navigation, dead stick spot landings with, you know, basically uh, shut your engine down and land on a spot. So we started working with a friend of ours in uh, Indiana, put together a yearly fly-in with these competitions where we could practice those types of skills. And then in 2003, myself and um, three other guys, four other guys, packed our planes into a container, shipped them to England, and competed in the, uh, the World Microlight Championships near Stratford, England. Now, the European competitors were really good, and that was because of the frequency that they were able to practice and the sheer number of local competitions that they held. Also, because everything in Europe is relatively close, it was easy for them to attend all of these events. For us, it meant shipping our planes in a container and then getting ourselves there and then staying there. And they were really pleased to see Americans competing because they never had a chance to do that. Unfortunately, they were so good because they practiced all the time at these specific tasks. As Americans, you know, they were happy to see us there, but we did not do all that well. I was flying a fixed-wing, single-seat CGS Hawk, as was my friend. There was another guy there flying a, an old pterodactyl in the single-seat fixed-wing class. And uh, I can say that I, in 2003, I was the best single-seat fixed-wing American pilot in the world. But out of 10 people in our class, we were 8th, 9th, and 10th. I happened to be number 8. So, um, But it was a great experience just to, to be able to, to get into that level of intensity. It started out where you left the airport and followed a course northbound from the airport to a specific intersection of a road. And then from there went west for a specific distance. And you had to pre-declare how long it was going to take you to fly that distance. They had people on the ground recording you from one point to another. And so you had to you know, figure out how fast you were going to fly, try and figure out what the winds are, compensate for those winds in the air if they were different than what you thought, and hit that last waypoint at exactly the right time. From there, 
you take a chart that they had drawn a huge outline of a butterfly about 30 miles across, including the antennas. And you got on that course and followed that line while you were referencing a bunch of pictures that they gave you. And you had to find that item in the picture on the ground and mark it on your chart within two millimeters of where it actually was. And follow that line exactly. Now, this is all done by pilotage. No GPS is allowed, nothing like that. You had to just pick out waypoints on the ground and fly point to point and pick out where exactly where those pictures were. Now, the pictures were taken at different, different times of the day, so the shadows were different, different times of the year, the fields were different colors. It was uh, very intense. And somewhere along that outline of the butterfly, there would be a big orange ground marker, either in the shape of an X or a T or an H. You had to find that ground marker, reference where that was or what that represented. They gave you a, a chart. If it's an X that you see, here's the course line, the course in degrees that you fly to get to your destination airport. And then I don't remember what the shape was but it, or even what the, the magnetic course was, but I found the marker, flew the course line, and it took me right to the airport. But you're having to do all this mapping in the air while you're trying not to get lost. We landed there and ate lunch. The next task was a short takeoff task where they put a tape across the runway at one meter high, and you decided how close you could start your takeoff run to that tape and still clear it on takeoff, which favors airplanes with a really low stall speed. That's cool. But the thing is, that as soon as you clear the tape and get off the runway, the next portion of the task is a speed run, 14 miles. How fast can you get from point A to B? That favors a fast plane, which is not necessarily the same plane as one with a slow stall speed. And then when you get to the end of that course, you have to take or land across a tape and stop as short as you can on the other side, again, favoring a plane with a slow stall speed. So you can't, they tried to rig these competitions so no one particular design of airplane had an advantage over all the others. Cleared the tape, made the speed run. What they didn't tell us is that at the end of the task, you're, uh, you're climbing, the ground is rising the whole time. At the end of the task, you come up over a big cliff that drops off probably 800 feet and the airport's down there at the bottom of that. So now you've got to burn off all this altitude. In any case, landed, and they gave us the next task, which is to fly into Wales and pick out churches. Again, with pictures, where is this church on the, mar on the chart? It's got to be within two millimeters of where it actually is. And it, when you get back, they take your chart and put an overlay on it and find out how close you were to actually marking it accurately. So you fly through Wales, pick out as many churches as you can, find your way back to the original airport, and then there's a spot landing at the end of that. They give you a little rest, and in the evening, it's dead stick landings. Take off fly the pattern right over the top, the middle of the runway, upwind at 1,000 feet, shut your engine off, do a full pattern, and land on a spot. That's a full day. That is a hard day of flying. And uh, that was just one day. The thing went on for six days. So that's the, the intensity of what you're, you're seeing there. There are also fuel economy tasks where you drain the fuel from your plane, run it till the engine quits, and then they give you a measured amount, and you go fly. There's two different ways of doing fuel economy tasks. One is Here's a certain amount of fuel, fly as far as you can, hit as many waypoints as possible, and still make it back. The other one is, here's our set amount of fuel, now stay up over the airport as long as you possibly can. Different types of flying, optimizing which way do you need distance or do you need uh, time. They also told us that if you run out of fuel while flying in England, you can be arrested and taken away. So they, uh, they 
they urged us to keep an eye on our fuel. If you see bubbles, make a precautionary landing. As long as you can restart your engine, you haven't run out of fuel. So <laughs> one of the guys I was flying with had a trike. He came back flying over the airport, holding the corner of his fuel tank up so he could get the last few drops out of it. The perfect task in that case is to run out of fuel over the airport and dead stick it in. When we came back home, we all got together and started doing those types of tasks and, and competitions here in the U.S., those who had been there and those who really had wanted to have been there but couldn't afford to do it or something like that, uh, we'd get together once a year in Indiana and do those types of, of tasks. One thing that I didn't mention, but they would we would carry a GPS with us, but where we couldn't reach it, out in our wing or something like that. When you get back, they take your GPS, download the track log, and know exactly where you've been. One of the competitions we did in Indiana was along the lines of that butterfly, but it was a, a hawk sitting on a fence post. And I ran that competition and they showed me my track log when it was done and it looked like a hawk sitting on a fence post. Wow. <laughs> but you know, there's there's things they can throw in, like gates. You have to pass between these two points on your on your track line somewhere, not just horizontally, but vertically. And part of doing that hawk, I think it was the wing feathers. So you're having to make these really sharp hairpin turns to come off the end of the tail feather and then back and then back and forth. But each turn was at a different altitude and sometimes a thousand foot difference. And they're only maybe a mile apart. So you're, uh, you're climbing fast to get up to the right altitude for and then you make the next turn and then you have to dive to get to the next one. 3D type of thing going on. You only see 2D on your GPS track, but uh, they, you can download the altitudes too. So it was... Very intense. And it was deliberately made that way. If we ever wanted to go back in international competition, we wanted to have harder tasks here to practice. So we'd be at least up somewhat to the, the skill level that they run in, the, in, the, in Europe. In 2004, we were in uh, Springfield, Kentucky, I believe it's called. And in that competition, I ended up taking second place because my good friend Dan Grunlow cannot be beaten. So uh, he, he, he took first place from me. And in 2006, we had the next competition and uh, Dan was running it. So he wasn't flying. And in that case, I won the competition as U.S. champion. And we haven't had a competition since. So here it is, 2015, and uh, I'm still national champion. Whoopee. Yeah. Incredibly fun, though. I mean, the thing, that I, I did a presentation for uh, an FAA safety seminar about ultralight competition. And it doesn't have to be ultralights. Anybody can do this. And it makes you such a good pilot. It makes you, it increases your skills so much. You become so much better at pilotage, at emergency procedures. You can put the plane where you want it to be at any one time. Um, you really learn, intimately learn your aircraft and can make it do whatever you want it to do in those types of situations, whether you're trying to stretch fuel for some reason or you have an engine out and you need to put it into a small field, it's become second nature. You practice so much. In fact, I went to a competition one time and uh, we were trying to get everybody just to play with us. And this was, this was just beanbag drops, simple stuff. And he says, well, I'm not going to compete against you because you practice. Well, yeah, you've got an airplane. You've got the time. Why aren't you practicing? You could be this good. And I, know, I was really never that good. I just kept at it. And uh, there really was only a core of six to 10 people who would do the competitions anyway. And we were best buddies off the field, but we were cutthroat when we were in the air. That pretty much covers competition, I think. Unfortunately, our storyteller and his team were never able to go back to the World Microlight Championships, just because of the expense and how tedious it was to transport their aircraft over there. The 
international competition scene has changed a little bit since then. They do still have the World Microlight Championships, but there's a lot more attention being given to what they call the World Air Games. And what they're trying to do is make it friendly to the public so it can be done within a stadium or something like that. So they don't really run too much with fixed wing anymore. It's about the powered parachutes and the track, uh, the trikes and stuff that can work within the confines of a small area where you can have crowds in, a, in bleachers watching what's going on. And also in, in Europe, for the most part, those types of competitions, microlights is what they call them over there. It's a slightly expanded version of what we have here as ultralights. In fact, it kind of encompasses our light sport aircraft type of classification. But hangar space there is even worse than it is here in the U.S. A lot of people fly trikes over there, something they can fold up and take home. Trikes and gyroplanes are becoming very popular too, something very portable. So, no, we haven't been back since uh, some of my friends went back in uh, 2005, I believe it was, when it was in France. And um, I think that's the last time an American has gone there. I'm sure my skills have atrophied since then because I get used to flying with GPSs and everything. And I still very much enjoy cross-country flying, but uh, not to the point where I'm testing myself anymore. And that's that's sad. I should. But uh, it was a lot more fun when you got somebody to play with. While I get to fly with my local group here, it's mostly flying to breakfast or, or big fly-ins. So I haven't painted a, a landing grid on the runway since I've lived here. So, <laughs> yeah, I should. I should because I know the plane that I had been flying back then I knew intimately well. I was flying a single seat CGS Hawk. It's a Hawk Sport with a Rotax 447 on it at the time. Fuel burn and economy task was down to 1.6 gallons an hour. I don't know, I could I just knew that plane so well. I could make that thing sit up and beg. And I could I know I could put it on a spot from any altitude with a dead engine. The one I'm flying now, not that not that confident. But that, that all came from practice because of the extreme, I won't say the extreme competitions, the, the competitions themselves weren't dangerous or extreme as you, you think of them, but uh, they were intense. Steve Bensinger lives in Bushnell, Florida, and today he's a sales rep for the Gropo Trail Light Sport Aircraft, which is a really cool little all aluminum tandem kit airplane manufactured in Italy. Currently, Steve is in the middle of building his own trail, while he flies one of the company's finished models so that he can show off the design and sell the kits. You can check out pictures of Steve's aircrafts that he flew during his competitions and what he flies today, as well as more information about these stories by going to the article at thelogbookpodcast.com. This episode was supported directly by your donations. If you enjoy the show, you can support its production by becoming a patron. Through Patreon, you set a donation level that is given every time a new episode is released and you can always set a monthly limit so you don't go over your budget. Depending on the amount donated, you are granted access to different rewards that are as simple as hearing a sneak preview to the next episode, all the way up to exclusive content that didn't make it into the show. Any amount is helpful, and the more that's donated, the more the show can improve. Head over to our website, thelogbookpodcast.com, and click on the Patreon banner at the side of the page to start supporting. Also, don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps bring awareness to the logbook. If you have a story about anything in aviation, we would love to hear it, and it may even become an episode of The Logbook. You can send us an email by using the contact page on our website. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you come back for the next entry in The Logbook. <laughs>